0: Brian Crowell On Christmas Eve, Brian Crowell was at his best friend's house. While Brian was on the phone with his sister, Brian's friend decided to show him the gun that he had recently discovered hidden in his mother's room. The friend's mother kept the unlocked and loaded gun for protection. His friend thought he removed all the bullets from the chamber. One bullet remained. Playing, Brian's friend pulled back the hammer, listening to the clicks of what he believed was an unloaded gun. The gun fired and shot Brian in the neck as he was hanging up the phone. Brian's last words were, I can't believe you shot me. Brian tried to run home just around the corner. He only made it to his friend's living room, where he collapsed on the floor. His mother and father were notified by the police of the accident and asked to get to the hospital as soon as possible. Brian's parents were unaware of the circumstances of the accident until they reached the hospital. Frantic efforts were made to save Brian's life, including surgery, but in a short period of time, Brian's parents were told that they needed to say goodbye. Brian only had a few heartbeats left.
1: This is Ian Pulse, with your hosts, Sarah Maderis and Julia Magagna. Bullet Points Part 1 blood on my shoes.
0: The story you heard and the others you will hear throughout this podcast are from StopHandGunViolence.org.
2: That is such a sad story written by a mother who was robbed of a future
0: with her child, Brian. Yeah, and I think it's important to say these names out loud. These stories today represent children, but gun violence impacts all ages, as I know so well.
2: You really do. And this is our topic today. You know, we have talked about gun violence and its prevention a few times at eM impulse but we are starting a four-part series that is going to take an in-depth look at what we can practically do as physicians to identify patients at risk for firearm injuries and to partner with them to reduce that risk,
0: that harm. Here at the UC Davis Emergency Department, we are honored to be a part of the Bullet Points Project. The Bullet Points Project is a resource for clinicians and medical educators who are committed to firearm injury prevention. It is funded by the state of California and developed by the California Firearm Violence Research Center here at UC Davis.
2: Dr. Amy Barnhorst is a physician leader in that group
0: and our series guest and expert. And because gun violence is a multidisciplinary thing, we've also partnered with Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a UC Davis pediatric trauma surgeon and host of The Country Hits podcast.
2: This first episode will go over the background information that we need to know on firearm violence, who this applies to, stats on where, who, and why. Okay, let's
0: get started. Frankie Binkard. Frankie was at her boyfriend's house in Salt Lake City, Utah, where they found a gun in his home. She and her boyfriend were looking at the gun, thinking the bullet chamber was empty, when it accidentally discharged and killed Frankie, just 14 years old at the time. Amy,
3: tell us briefly, what exactly is Bullet Points? So Bullet Points is a state-funded project through our firearm violence Prevention Center here at Davis. And it's to develop a curriculum for healthcare providers so that they have tools to intervene in the clinical setting with patients who are at risk of firearm injury. So we cover suicide, people with dementia living in homes with guns, making sure children don't have access, threats of mass shootings, clinical situations that healthcare providers of all kinds, ER docs, primary care docs, social workers, psychologists might encounter in their clinical setting. And then we give them the ability to assess the risk and give them tools so that they can intervene appropriately with that risk. And is this like a med school curriculum or where can people access bullet points? We have a website that has a lot of our resources on it, bulletpointsproject.org, that will walk you through various clinical situations where firearms pose a risk. And then it will link you to interventions that would be relevant for that particular situation, has lots of other information on it, too. On our website, you can also find our brand new one-hour online free continuing education course where you can get one of your CME credits. We also do a lot of presentations. I've been doing grand rounds all over the state, actually in a couple other places outside the state. We are developing some tools to be used in medical school curricula. We have an upcoming symposium for medical educators that they can join to learn how to use some of our tools and build their own curriculum.
1: Healthcare providers being involved in the conversation about gun violence and ways to prevent gun violence is actually somewhat controversial. Rather famously, we've been told to stay in our lane, right? To stay away from this issue of gun violence as a public health problem, right? Like, my job as a pediatric surgeon is to sew up the holes and it ends there, right? According to some people in society, including some people in the practice of medicine. What's the argument from bullet points about why firearm injury prevention is a healthcare issue. Why do we need to be in this lane?
3: Like with any healthcare issue, we have a role in prevention as well. So, you know, people who are seeing a lot of lung cancer, they're never going to just not address the cigarette smoking issue. They're going to bring that up and say, hey, maybe people shouldn't smoke. Maybe we should have programs in place. Maybe we should pre screen folks. Maybe there's ways that we can prevent all these patients from getting to us. And that was kind of what happened with This Is Our Lane. All of these, you know, surgeons and ER docs in particular who see the sequelae of gun violence were saying, hey, we can't just sew the bullet holes and then move on. This keeps happening. And these same folks keep coming in. of course, we have a role in prevention, just like we have a role in preventing, you know, pediatric patients from drowning in swimming pools and all kinds of public health problems. So... There's very much a role and always has been a role for physicians to get involved in prevention of the injuries and the diseases they treat.
1: Yeah, I think a lot about the sort of concept of left of launch, right? Like you try to identify the problem before it becomes a problem. And ultimately, physicians should be constantly working to put ourselves out of business, right?
0: Yes. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Siobhan Dean Siobhan was caught in between a gang fight when she was playing in a street nearby her home in Chicago, Illinois. She was shot and killed by a 12-year-old boy. Siobhan was 15 years old when she died. This one
2: feels a little bit more hot button, mm-hmm. a little bit more uncomfortable for physicians, though, because it has some Cultural barriers and some political implications. It's not just do you have a gate around your swimming pool? Right. What are some barriers for physicians joining this
3: lane, having these conversations? I think that's absolutely right. This is a very emotionally laden topic for people, and that puts people off of it. I always use the analogy of a toaster, whereas if I tell you your toaster in your house, which is a very useful tool that people probably use a lot more than their guns, frankly, your toaster's putting you and your family in danger. And if you keep it in the house, it's going to increase the risk that somebody gets injured or killed. You'd probably be like, you know what? No problem. I'm going to throw out my toaster. If I want to make toast, I will use my broiler. Thanks for letting me know. If I say that about your gun, it could be a really different reaction because the gun isn't just a tool like a toaster. The gun is a lot more than that. It's It would be more like if I told you you needed to throw out your wedding ring, which really symbolizes a part of your identity and may have nostalgia. It may be something that was passed down through your family because this is the culture of your family. You know, guns for people in the United States really symbolize freedom, liberty, the ability to rise up against an oppressive government, the ability to protect your family, and to protect the people in your household that you love. So to say you have to get this thing out of the household when it's not just a part of who you are and who your people are, but it's also a part of how you provide for your loved ones and how you protect them, That's asking a lot more than like getting rid of a toaster. And I think that's a barrier because it can be really hard for non-gun owners to understand that. So when they meet up against that resistance, they don't understand why. Why would a patient keep this dangerous thing in their house? Why aren't they listening to me and doing what I tell them? One of the things that can help overcome that barrier is being educated about not just guns themselves, but why people own them, why they're important to people. What are some of the ideas that they have about firearms and safety, and how can you meet in the middle and have respectful conversations, rather than presenting them with information that is very much at odds with what they might have learned in their family or their culture?
0: Rekia Isaac. Rekia was playing in her neighborhood in Miami, Florida, when she was hit by a bullet intended for another person. She was killed at age five on the anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Thomas Vandenberg II. Thomas was at a party at his friend's home in Chicago, Illinois, when some teens opened fire. Thomas was killed at 15 years of age.
2: What are some other barriers that you hear from physicians, nurses, other providers to engaging in these conversations. I can think of lack of time. (laughs) Lack of time
3: is a huge one. And, you know, this is something when we developed bullet points, we talked about a lot because there's kind of a debate in the firearms curriculum for healthcare providers world. It's a small world, but there is a world out there and it's becoming a much bigger movement. People are very interested in this. Doctors very much want to be involved. But people worry about the timepiece. And so there's this debate about whether or not it should be universal screening. Should you ask every patient if there's a firearm in the home? You know, the argument for universal screening is like, well, we ask everybody about tobacco use. And I think that really belies a certain understanding of guns, which is that guns like cigarettes are all bad for all people all the time. There's nobody for whom you would find out they smoked cigarettes and be like, that's cool carry on like no big deal you're not <laughs> at risk but the approach we take is that not everybody should be counseled or needs to be counseled to you know abolish guns from their life people who have risk factors should be we take more of a harm reduction approach which is the people who are risk we should try to mitigate that risk but we're not taking the approach of abolishing all guns from the face of the earth or even just our country because it's not realistic and it's been proven to not be effective. People always say, you know, why can't we just do a big gun buyback like they did in New Zealand or Australia after that mass shooting and they got rid of all the guns and I'm like, it's a real different country than the United States.
1: And it's hard for me because I have a lot of children's blood on my shoes, right? Yeah. From gun violence. Yeah. A lot of gun violence. I see all the negative effects and so I would say that, like, I sit on the other pole, right? I just have a hard time conceiving having seen what happens when a kid gets shot that like anyone would be okay with setting their family up for a situation where that could happen. What I try to remind myself is like, okay, like not everyone has seen this. Not not right. everyone knows what the implications right. are. They in their world perceive that like this gun is a important thing for safety or culture or whatever. And I I, I do struggle because I know how strong my feelings are about engaging in that conversation I feel that barrier. But what has worked for me, I think to some degree is to have sort of a pattern, just to like include it in that conversation. Yeah. Cause I think patients want to know you care, right? And so for me, it's like I include it in like, you have a car seat, are you sure it's properly installed? Right. Do you have a pool? Is there a fence around the pool? You know, I had a patient come in recently where the patient had like two-year-old, had scaled a five-foot pool fence and fallen in the pool and had a near drowning. And he was fine, barely. But I took that opportunity to say, hey, by the way, like, you know, if this kid can climb this fence, like he can totally climb your closet. Is your gun secure? Right. What are the ways that we can reduce barriers for physicians to engaging these conversations?
3: I think that's a great one is putting it in the context of risk. You know, it may not feel like this all the time, but patients do listen to us. And I think putting it in that, just like you said, that context of risk and caring, like I'm concerned about your safety and the safety of your family. And that is, you know, your pool or your your medications or your firearm. And these are all things that can pose a risk. We're not going to tell people to get rid of their cardiac medications or get rid of their swimming pool. But I think it's important to at least open a dialogue about the risks those things pose and how they can be mitigated. Because a lot of times patients just haven't thought of this stuff. So I think that's a huge part of it is is really putting it in a neutral, risk-based framework with other things that easily fit that framework that they're used to us talking about. That can at least open a conversation if you find that the person just shuts down and won't talk about it well maybe that's all the information you need at that point and you can kind of move on and maybe have an opportunity to come back to it. One of the other barriers, I think, is that there's this idea that not only do patients not want to have these conversations, but maybe possibly it's illegal in some places. There was this legislation in Florida that was passed many years ago that was known as the Docs versus Glocks case where they passed a law that said Essentially, that physicians weren't allowed to ask about firearms or record things in the medical record. But even in the original law, it had a specification unless it's clinically relevant. So one could make the argument that, you know, it was okay to do. However, it got a lot of press. It really freaked people out. Physicians groups fought back. The law was eventually repealed. So currently, there are no federal or state statutes that prevent people from having these conversations. But it does come up all the time that. Healthcare providers believe they're not allowed to. And when we ask patients in survey work, most of them say, particularly if somebody in the house is at risk of suicide or um, is making threats, that they are in favor of having these discussions with their physicians, even firearm owners. So while you may run into, you know, a small number of people who are very opposed to it, generally it's well-received
0: when put in the context of risk. Amy Murks. Amy was with friends in Chicago, Illinois, when she was the victim of a drive-by shooting. Amy was 18 years old.
1: And when put in that clinical context, right, this isn't a conversation yeah. you're having with a stranger at a cocktail party, right? right. You, you are in a clinical <laughs> context about, like, yes. you're not talking politics. The clinical context of Understanding the risk and communicating that risk—I mean, we do that all the time, like you said. Yeah, cholesterol and smoking and everything else—and this is this is a public health issue in which we are very much in our lane. Can you help us understand a little bit, like about the key facts or the 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 data that's most important or compelling that we should be using in these conversations?
3: So, I want to say there's a caveat that. Data is not what changes people's minds. You know, I I obviously spew a lot of data when I'm giving presentations and educating people. But when I'm talking to patients, it's much harder to address somebody's deeply held cultural and emotional beliefs with data. And there's actually been studies that if groups, of folks who were anti-vaccine were given more information, more statistics, more data about the efficacy and safety of vaccines, it actually caused them to become more deeply entrenched in their anti-vax beliefs. And I don't think this has been done with firearms in particular, but I suspect it would be similar. That being said, there is lots of important data to know. Firearms are one of the leading causes of death in the U.S., and they're now the leading cause of death among young Americans, so adolescents and young adults. And they cause almost 50,000 deaths per year. Most of those deaths, despite what the media might portray, are not mass shootings. Mass shootings are like a tiny, they're less than a percent of the deaths in any given year. The majority of them are suicides. So up until very recently, suicides were about two-thirds of firearm deaths. Homicides were about one-third. And then mass shootings, a tiny sliver of homicides. That changed a little bit during COVID because violent crime and homicides went up so much that it actually eclipsed some of the suicides. And weirdly, the suicide rate during COVID went down. But generally, it's about a one-third, two-third split. And we rarely hear about all those suicides because suicide is a private thing. It's not something people talk about. It's heavily stigmatized. It's often not reported that that was the cause of death in the news. So while mass shootings get outsized publicity, suicides get very undersized publicity. And there are good and bad reasons for that. But what it does is kind of takes the danger of firearm suicide out of the minds of firearm owners. And people don't necessarily recognize that as one of the huge problems with having a gun in the house. Right now, we're working on a project where we're building a um, a coalition doing some interviews with folks in Northern California who are firearms instructors or range owners or gun shop owners or run clubs, shooting clubs. And a lot of them I found are really conscious about safety, about safe storage in the home, about safety on the range, about you know, storing your firearm properly, handling it properly. But when we ask them about firearm suicide and what they do to prevent that among their, you know, their club members or the people who come to the range, they kind of say, well, I don't really think that's a problem. And then when I do bring up some of these statistics with them, they say, oh yeah, actually, now that you say that, I do know a couple of people, and it kind of gets these wheels turning, but it's so interesting to me that this is a very safety-conscious group, from my perspective, that has really put some thought into these things, but they do not think about firearm suicide. It's not on their minds, even though almost everyone I've talked to has lost somebody from it. Even though we often focus on deaths, there's almost double the number of non-fatal injuries, and that's a lot of what we as physicians see. The non-fatal injuries are much more likely to be unintentional. So about half of them are unintentional injuries and about 40% are assaults. Very, very few suicide attempts with a gun result in a non-fatal firearm injury because almost every attempt made with a gun is fatal. That's why it's really important to think about keeping guns out of the hands of folks who are suicidal because oftentimes the suicidal crises resolve and they don't go on to make another attempt. They don't decide that they want to end their life That was just a bad moment. But if there's a gun there, they don't get
0: a second chance. Pulse check. According to the CDC, there were 45,222 firearm-related deaths in the United States in 2020. That's about 124 deaths a day. And mass shootings are just a tiny percentage. The majority of deaths are suicides and homicides. Firearm injury is a public health concern and therefore our concern. If it puts blood on my shoes, it is my issue. Data doesn't change people's minds. Partnering with our patients and communities to reduce harm does. To prepare for these conversations, start with a look at your own beliefs and biases and keep listening for more tips on firearm injury prevention. You
2: know, the image of Jonathan with children's blood on his shoes really jumped out at me, Sarah. You know, Jonathan and I have been in the trenches together at bedside for many injured children, and it almost becomes like automated or mechanical to deal with those moments, you know, and it's not until after when you're cleaning up that it really hits you what that means for that child in front of you.
0: I know. And I think that's why it is such an important topic for all of us and why so many doctors want to be a part of the change.
2: I am learning so much with this series, and I hope that we can all take just a small piece away from this series and impact a member in our own communities.
0: Thank you to our own colleagues who support projects like Bullet Points and this podcast to get the message out there.
2: And thank you to OM Audio Productions for always
0: being on point. See you all next time.